Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I think that would be nice. And then you, then you can, then you can cut it off when it needs to be cut. Jefferson said, 
the ultimate powers of the society are the people themselves. And if we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. This is the true corrective of abuse a national agenda of quality education. 
increased development of science and technology in our research universities. President Reagan appointed him to the National Science Board, which he now chairs. President Bush appointed him to the President's Education Policy Advisory Committee. President Rhodes had reason to know something about the British and their butlers. Uh, he was born in England, where he received uh, his university education and training as a geologist. He's the author of more than 70 major scientific articles and monographs in his field and has contributed to two BBC series, The Planet Earth on Television and the radio series Science, Philosophy, and Religion. Before joining Cornell as its president in 1977, Dr. Rhodes was vice president for academic affairs at the University of Michigan and served as professor of geology and head of the geology department at the University of Wales. Among, as you heard, the many awards he received from this campus, the Distinguished Clark Kerr Award given by the Berkeley Faculty Center. Please join me in welcoming back to Berkeley Cornell University President Emeritus Professor Berkeley. Well, 
really draw to your attention what is being done elsewhere. So thank you for the leadership that Berkeley represents. I'm also delighted, of course, at the link with Thomas Jefferson, who is one of my heroes. Uh, he wrote, as you just heard, his own epitaph when he was buried at Monticello. And it read, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. It was interesting that as he left the presidency after two terms, declining the third, he said of his founding of the University of Virginia, and here I quote, that this was the last of my mortal cares and the last service I could render to my country, not to Virginia, but to my country. And as you know, he was responsible for much of the architecture. He selected many of the faculty. He designed the courses. He even provided reading lists, an infringement from the administration of many faculty members today. <laughs> His other plans for primary and secondary education did not succeed, but the University of Virginia remains the embodiment and the lasting tribute to his ideals. And he viewed it in that epitaph as intimately connected with the Declaration of Independence and religious freedom. The um, terms of reference of the Jefferson Lectures are that they should be devoted, and I quote, to subjects appropriate to the study and promotion of American democracy. But the epitaph, as befits the man, was too modest. For in designing the University of Virginia, Jefferson was also designing the prototype American University. And in designing the prototype American University, he also designed the means to perpetuate the democracy that he had visioned into existence, the long-term promotion of American democracy, in the words of lecture. And if the Declaration of Independence is a visionary statement of the American dream writ large, then the American University is the crucial means to its attainment. There can be no achievement, said Morris Bishop of Cornell, there can be no achievement without a dream. Giant towers rest on a foundation of visionary purpose. The American University is the great engine for converting human hopes and individual aspirations into individual success and achievement. It is the powerful agent between a nation's aspirations and the nation's attainment. Consider, if you will, the impact that the American University, if I can call it that, has had on the life of this nation during the past century. This is a great time of looking back and picking the top ten of everything of the last century. But I wonder if our forebears in 1899 would have picked the top half dozen developments likely to take place in the universities in the future. If you go back to 1900, there were at that time 977 institutions of higher education, most of them small and of somewhat questionable reputation. There are today 3,842, 3,842, most of them large and of fine reputation, a few of them small still and questionable reputation. <laughs> a huge growth in the number of institutions, a huge growth second in the participation 
of the so-called college-age population in higher education. In 1900, 4% of the college-age population, 18 to 22, attended college. In 1966, the last year for which figures are available, that figure was 43%. In 1900, only 2.7% of the population had attended college before all the years. A tenfold increase in that by the end of this century, 23.6% of the 25-year-olds and above have had at least four years of college. A growth in numbers of institutions, a growth in participation, a wonderful growth in the inclusiveness of American higher education. We all know the story of the last 30 years, the story of growing inclusiveness and growing success in what has been called vertical integration, horizontal integration. Members of once underrepresented minority groups attend the campuses of the nation in increasing numbers despite the recent challenges. And the number of women enrolled on the campuses now exceeds the number of men. A growth in participation, a growth in the number of institutions, a growth in inclusiveness, and a huge growth, an explosive growth in science and technology, both in terms of the scope, in terms of support, in terms of the outcomes of science and technology, a massive explosion based on the campuses in the outspread impact of science and technology. A growth, too, on the campuses in professionalism. 30 years ago, about 56% of baccalaureate degrees were awarded in arts and sciences. Today, that figure is closer to 30% and is still falling. And so across the campuses, professionalism, even at the undergraduate level, grows increasingly common, increasingly dominant. That has its price, as all these trends do. But in fact, it's a fact of life at the close of the 20th century. And finally, a growth in impact, growth in a number of institutions, a growth in participation, a growth in inclusiveness, a growth in science and technology, a growth in professionalism, and a huge growth in impact. I had the privilege under Harry's guidance yesterday in, including, in, in seeing the exhibition on biotech that David Farrell has put together. And one thing that impressed me deeply was the role that the University of California as a system and Stanford played in that. It is said that over 35% uh, of all the biotech companies are headquartered within 30 miles of a UC campus. And in fact, the revenue that's received by the University of California last year, just from biotechnology, were over $60 million. Let me give you one more example on the other coast. MIT faculty and students have, between them, over the years, created more than 4,000 high-tech companies with world sales of $232 billion, employing more than 1.1 billion people. If you converted that from disparate companies into a single gross national product, it would be worth about $160 billion. And if you then compare that with the gross national products of countries, it would rank 24 between South Africa and Thailand. To one campus, that kind of impact. And 80% of those jobs are in manufacturing, as opposed to the nationwide percentage of 16% of all jobs in manufacturing. An enormous growth in the impact of higher education from every campus over the last century. 
And this, at the very time that knowledge has become the new economic currency. I want to think for a moment about that, if I may, because we fail to give adequate attention to the fact that we live in an age where natural resources are now perhaps of lesser consequence than knowledge as a commodity. Until recent times, a nation's success depended very much upon its gifts, upon its natural resources, upon its mineral deposits, its coal, its oil, its gas, upon its topography, upon its climate, upon its population, upon its military strength, on its coastlines, armaments, rivers, and communications networks. All that will still be important. But more important still will be knowledge. And unlike other natural resources, knowledge is inexhaustible. Even if it's given away and shared, it multiplies, it's not diminished. It is autocatalytic, it expands in the hands of its users. Even if you challenge it and test it and question it, it is refined and strengthened in the very end of challenge, test, and question. It expands in its usefulness, it expands in its range and in its scope. But it is not a given. It is not a natural resource in simply occurring as we walk along and finding it as a rock or a flower or a mineral. It comes only to the prepared mind. It is not a natural resource at all, but it is created, coaxed into existence by imaginative individuals with the insight to conceive. Just as a TV program, a TV broadcast, is available only to those with a TV set, or a telephone conference call only to those with a phone. So knowledge is available only to the prepared mind. And the universities, the American universities, are quintessentially the agents of knowledge. Knowledge created, knowledge shared, knowledge applied, knowledge trusted. The agents of change, the agents of the new economic capital, now, if that were all, then the dawn of the new millennium would be a time of brightness and promise and hope. We could declare victory and go home. But the larger picture, both national and global, is scarcely there in current. At home, we face nagging problems which don't seem to decline. Problems of poverty, of homelessness, of declining neighborhoods and unstable families, of failing schools. And broad, the picture seems to get worse with every passing day. Of religious and ethnic hatred, of organized genocide, of political oppression, of north-south inequalities, of an imbalance between population and resources and conservation, and wars that springing up and nuclear threats abounding on an expanding scale. Dickens might have been writing of our own time when he observed it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light and the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. But you reply, in my particular world, things are not that bad. In the world of higher education, we understand the world around us, but the outlook is really very good. Applications at all the selected universities are going up. SAT scores are improving 
helps a little bit by recalibration of the bottom note. <laughs> Even those things in which we face particular challenges, the Narnia role, are inching up, and the progress has been substantial over the years. State funding has started to come back, though Tucker lies ahead of us, one might say. Endowment is at an all-time high for most campuses, thanks to the surge in fund. And so is alumni giving to the foundation and corporate support. Things are really looking very good. Federal research support is increasing at a rate we never thought possible. And even federal support for financial aid is more or less holding its own. There's just one problem. Many thoughtful observers tell us that the good times are over, that we are coming to a sickening, jolting halt as far as the traditional campus is concerned. Forbes magazine said it well. Colleges and universities as we know them are obsolete, it declared in a headline. And more informed external observers, such as Peter Drucker, declare, these are Drucker's words, I consider the American Research University of the last 40 years to be a failure. Universities won't survive. The future is outside the traditional campus, outside the traditional classroom. Distance learning is coming on fast. And even from within the campus, for those who wish the university well, there are voices that warn us that pending doom. Listen to Professor Eli Nome, Columbia University, Professor of Economics and Finance, from a recent article in Science entitled Electronics and the Dim Future of the University. He asks whether the electronic revolution will not do to the universities what the development of printing did to medieval cathedrals, robbing of their place as the focus for information dissemination. And he writes, have we reached the end of a line of a model that goes back to Minigan more than 2,500 years ago? Or listen to the late Professor Bill Reddings writing a book published last year by the Harvard University Press. We have to recognize that the university is a ruined institution, writes Professor Reddings, while thinking what it means to dwell in those ruins without recourse to romantic nostalgia. And even some who take a less pessimistic view of the external situation tell us that we are now facing decay from within. One of the more colorful, Professor Charles Sykes, writes, Quote, almost single-handedly, the professors working steadily and systematically have destroyed the university as a center of learning and a desolated higher education, which is no longer higher or much of an education. I must confess, if I travel the campuses, I find that to be an exercise in my purpose. It seems to me education is alive and well. Indeed, Clark Kerr has reminded us in eloquent descriptions that the university is a hardy institution, that it was 75 institutions that were founded before 1520 and still survive 60 our universities. So they joined the Catholic Church and the parliaments of Iceland and the Isle of Man and the Mint, all the rest and several Swiss cantons. But in fact, these observers tell us there are two events that we have not taken seriously enough. And the first is this, that IT, information technology, is not simply a major new opportunity, it is a major threat to the traditional university. 
because it will undermine the business of the campus. The traditional goal of students was knowledge with a degree as its culmination. The new goal is competences and skills. The traditional pattern of learning was site-based, campus-located. It will now be unconstrained. The traditional pattern was a standardized curriculum with limited student choice. The new pattern will be an individualized curriculum with unlimited student choice. The traditional calendar fixed. The new calendar a flexible schedule as needed on time. Ezra Cornell developed an institution where he said any person could find instruction in any study. Cyberview would not have at any time in any place. The traditional curriculum was faculty-centered and faculty-presented. The new curriculum is student-centered and student-discovery-based. The professor not as a lecturer and expositor, but as a coach of an individual student. The traditional pattern was cost-intensive. The new one is cost-effective. The traditional pattern was to purchase the whole package before you agree. The new pattern is to go cherry-picking just in time, just as needed kind of knowledge and information and skill. And all that at a time when the monopoly that universities have enjoyed, and this is the second threat, is coming to an end. Higher education has been a regulated industry, and that regulation is now about to crumble. The University of Phoenix, a profit institution, one of five quoted on the NASA, has 60,000 students. It has 45 professors. All the rest are adjunct professors. And in 1997, it had a profit of $33 million. Its price-to-earnings ratio as a stock is 50. That convinces me that many people believe there is a bright future outside the traditional universities. And the University of Phoenix awards accredited degrees. It is not a diploma. It is accredited by the same regional associations as those who credit our own universities. That venture, however, is dwarfed by the development of online learning. In Turkey, to give just one example, Anadolu University has 530,000 students. And those students are instructed at one-tenth of the price of a traditional university in Turkey. There are now 11 nations that have distance learning universities with enrollments of more than 100,000. And before we conclude that the level they represent must be one of which we should not be proud, let me mention that Britain's open university, oldest of those, with an enrollment of 154,000 students. In a recent government-based survey of teaching quality, came 10th out of 77 institutions. All other 76 were campus-based, and its students received degrees at 50% of the traditional price. If that were not enough, then of course traditional colleges and universities are joining the effort. The number of uh, cyber schools increased from 93 in 1993 to 762 in 1997. And many of those are a roaring success, depending on the brand name 
at the institution. Duke University's Fuqua School of Business has a distance learning MBA degree. The first class two years ago took in 45 students from 45 different countries. The annual tuition is $85,000 as opposed to $50,000 for an on-campus degree, and it is flooded by applications. And so the industry in which we have had a sheltered role is about to be deregulated. And if you add to this the public resistance to the rising costs of higher education, then in fact, we're going to find that the university is channeled. And this is what our critics feel. The university, far from being a dynamo, our critics suggest, is really more like a dinosaur. Now, I've spent a good deal of my career worshiping dinosaurs, but the dinosaur, as these creatures see the university, is the university being unprepared for the new millennium, unprepared for the new era, unprepared for the Cenozoic cyber world, ancient like the dinosaur in our lineage, spectacular in our history, worldwide in our distribution, wonderfully varied in structure and form, formidable in our sheer size and bulk, splendid in our own tight way, but inadaptive now because the very factors that led to our success are now ours that threaten our future. Cold-blooded, slow, and lumbering, <laughs> we lack the agility and the flexibility and perhaps the wit to survive these harsh and Cretaceous times. Gazing up contentedly at the looming asteroid. <laughs> Yes, they say, the niche that we once filled will still be there. But that niche will now be taken over by nimble, low-cost, low-overhead mammalian competitors. Now, I want to remind you that the dinosaurs are not really extinct at all, that they were transformed into the birds. And if the universities are threatened, it will not be with extinction, but with a glorious transformation into something better. The American university, I argue, is no dinosaur. It is instead a dynamo. And classicists will tell me that those come from two different roots, and I know that the metaphor stands. It is a generator of energy. It is a transformer of power. More important now than ever in its history, not a declining institution shuffling its way into obscurity, but an engine of change and an agent of transformation transforming in its effects, unbounded in its potential, if, and only if, it is willing to adapt. And I think the first step in that adaptation is to recognize that our survival in strength into the next century is going to mean renewal, not replacing. It's going to mean reform, not revolution. It's going to mean realignment not total redesign, but it is going to be in change. I think there are five things we have to do as we face the asteroid. And the first is this. I believe that states have to rethink the role of higher education. That was last done many years ago in both states, of which California is one. 
to think about the role of higher education, to think about the scale, to think about the products, to think about the place, to think about the relationships, to think about the cost. Because until we know as states and as a nation what role we wish higher education to play, there can be nothing but political wrangling about its support and its place. We must rethink the role of higher education. And how we do that, how we get that on the agenda, on the state agenda, on the national agenda, is a challenge of major proportions. But we need that thing. Second, I believe each campus needs a restored and renewed sense of institutional purpose. The real trouble of the last century for all our success has been the harmonization of the campus. We've all attempted to emulate a single model. In spite of the fact that there are huge differences between us, the goal of every community and four-year college has been to be a little more like home. The next century will be marked by the success of those who can de-harmonize the campus. Most effectively. I love the story of the supermarket in Cambridge and the student who went through an express line which had the sign 10 items or less. And the student's card was piled with 40 or 50 different items. And the clerk said, excuse me, sir, this is, this is an express line. And the student went on unloading them onto the moving belt. And finally, the clerk, in desperation, said, are you a Harvard student who can't count or an MIT student who can't read? <laughs> Fourth, I think we have to rethink the PhD degree. 
If you look overall at the work of our universities, it seems to me they have been gloriously successful in professional education, in, in virtually every field, in research, in extension, and outreach, and public service activities. In all those, it seems to me, they deserve a big plus. If you take the PhD degree and undergraduate education, I would have to say they deserve an incomplete. If you think of the PhD degree for a moment, more effort goes into that degree at the 460 campuses that offer than any other activity on campus college. And yet the truth is that of the best and brightest who enroll in that degree, 50% never make it. In contrast with fewer than 5% in medical schools and law schools. Oh, but it's very different, you see. It's an entirely different kind of degree, and I agree it is. But that represents a massive waste of human capital and effort. The PhD is the most distinctive degree that we offer because it stands at the apex of all that our universities represent. It is the most variable because it varies not simply from college to college and school to school, or even department to department, but from faculty member to faculty member depending on either the concentration or neglect that their family member offers as a mentor. It's the most vulnerable because it depends on financial support, which is often variable and ephemeral in its continuation. And it's the most wasteful because of the massive rate of dropping and delayed completion. Let me give you one simple set of figures that illustrate the point. In the larger departments of economics, history, and political science, Boeing and Rubenstein plotted the outcomes of student success. They found that 25% of the students in the large prestigious institutions, we're talking about institutions such as Columbia and Berkeley, for example, 25% of the students in those areas drop out during or at the end of the first year. Of those they continue, a further 30% drop out before completing their coursework. And of those who complete their coursework, a further 25% never complete a doctoral dissertation. What kind of activity is that for a responsible research intensive university? And even worse, the rate of completion of students in the same areas in smaller PhD programs is twice that of those in the larger ones. We must rethink the number and rethink the style of our PhD program. And finally, if I may dare to say so, I think we have to reinvent and rekindle the community that is the campus. Universities were invented in the Middle Ages because monks concluded that they could pursue knowledge more effectively in community, in conversation, than they could in the seclusion of the monastic cell. But our new monastic cells, departments and sub-departments, have strong and impervious walls. Somehow, in this cyber world of open communications, we must rekindle the kind of communication on campus because that is the secret of education, and it's also the secret of scholarship. It's the secret of scholarship because the most challenging topic has now come at the intersection of the traditional discipline. And the problems of society do not come to us wrapped in neat disciplinary packages, but sprawling all across the academic. We must 
rethink the role of higher education. We must restore a sense of institutional purpose. We must recapture the curriculum. We must rethink the PhD program. We must rekindle a sense of community. Those will be wildly unpopular proposals with everyone. Unpopular with the administration, unpopular with the regents, particularly unpopular with the faculty, and unpopular alike with students, alumni, and the general public. Those discussions will be painful, they will be divisive, they will be prolonged, but they will ultimately be I believe those steps are necessary, but I believe they are also not sufficient. And that the new, the, the new American university, the university that succeeds in the next millennium, will be one that is marked by holding polar opposites in the course that it charts. Last week, I took two of my grandchildren on a boat ride to an offshore island in Estero Bay, Florida. And the channel that was used to get to the island was a very narrow one, and it was marked by channel markers on either side. What struck me was that that dredged channel represented the only way of getting to the place that we'd chosen to go, and that if I strayed to the right or left of those channel markers, I would run aground on shallow sand. It seems to me that's the kind of landscape map that we can offer for the new university. Not that we know what the university is going to look like, but that we know something about the landscape. It's a little bit like one of those old medieval maps, beautifully hand-colored, that in the hand-coloring had in one corner a cherub with expanded cheeks blowing the winds out, and then another had dolphins frolicking, and beautifully inscribed text which said, here be currents, and here be gales, and here be mermaids, and all the rest. What will that medieval map of the new university look like? I think the channel markers for the new university are going to be something like this. That increasingly, private and public universities are going to be more like each other. But that the public universities will be increasingly private supported. And the private universities will have to be increasingly publicly committed. But that the two will come to resist each other more and more as time goes on except perhaps in their governance. And that's a troubling question. You know the story of the public university president who complained that his institution used to be state-supported, and then it became, as hard times developed, financially state-assisted, and now he thought the most that could be said about it was that it was state-located. <laughs> so many it will continue to be campus-rooted, but internationally oriented. We cannot escape, and should not escape, the wonderful facilities that are built on the campuses of the neighborhoods where we live. But increasingly, education and scholarship both require an international orientation. Third, proudly independent, institutionally autonomous, and faculty with the utmost freedom, but constructively partner. There is no hope that we can isolate ourselves from new partners, some of whom will be controversial. And I am told that this might even be true at Berkeley in pursuing scholarship and research, but we should not and cannot escape that. And we shall need to write the fine print very carefully if we're to seize the opportunities that are available by its qualities. It will be knowledge-based but student-centered. It will still be research-driven, but it must be learning-focused and increasingly student-friendly. 
we will be technologically sophisticated, but community dependent because we shall reinvent the community on which learning depends. This community of scholars with all the yeasty interaction challenge that that involves. And it will be quality obsessed, but procedurally efficient. We are anything but efficient on our campuses, and we pride ourselves that because knowledge is priceless, it's less important in our case than it is in industry. We couldn't be more wrong. And unless we correct that situation, others will correct it for us. Look what happened to our colleagues in the healthcare industry. And finally, our campuses are going to be increasingly professionally attuned, but they must be humanely informed. And I lament the kind of self-destruction we've seen in the last two decades in the humanities and the increasingly restrictive role they have chosen to play in the great issues of public life and in the concerns of the world of In all that, there will be change. But it seems to me some things will not change and should not change. And that amidst that change, we should reaffirm the ancient verities on which all universities are founded. That teaching is a moral vocation. That it affects not just the mind, but the will. That it is not just a job, but it is a war. That scholarship is a public trust. And that that implies standards of behavior and responsibility and integrity and excellence, which we can never ignore. That service is a societal obligation because our campuses are supported by the public in the conviction that ultimately knowledge serves the public good. That freedom is the essential condition and community is the effective means. In the end, our discussions about universities cannot be discussions in the abstract because we deal with people. We deal with each other. John Henry Charles once wrote, a university is not a factory, not a treadmill, not a mint, but an alma mater, knowing the children one by one. Universities in the end provide people, and on this campus and other campuses walk the future leaders of tomorrow in every field from every nation, in our classrooms and in our labs, sitting on benches beside our quadrangles, are the political leaders, are the corporate giants, are the reformers and the revolutionaries, the poets and the visionaries and the artists, and the physicians and the scientists and the technologists and the agriculturalists, all those, the benefactors and the prophets and the seers who will reshape the world in which the future resides. What an opportunity on the campus. Alfred North Whitehead once said, the task of the university is the creation of the future, so far as rational discourse and civilized means of appreciation can affect the issue. I think it was right. And so in the end, when we talk about the future of the American university, it's not really only about the future of the American university. It is about Mr. Jefferson's dream. It is about a dream of free men and women and their hopes and dreams and their longings and their aspirations and of the strong wings and soaring possibilities that knowledge provides. And it's also about Jefferson's goal of a just and inclusive society and a proud and independent nation, hospitable to difference, but united in purpose. 
whose common life is based on common laws, whose nobility is created on the dignity of worth of all its whose strength is founded on its generosity of spirit, and whose aspirations are governed by the steady conviction of the transforming power of knowledge wisely and humanely used to enrich the human experience and so improve the human condition. Thank you. Thank you. The, the question of the role of citizenship in the undergraduate experience and the extent to which universities 
about that particular virtue. I think there are, there are certain virtues, if I can use that old-fashioned word, for which the universities stand. One is openness, another is integrity, a third is civility, a fourth is acceptance, or whatever one's differences, background, or nationality, or race, or anything else. And, and the fifth, I think, is citizenship, and that larger sense, citizenship on the campus, and citizenship beyond the campus. But I also think that you promote citizenship not by getting courses on it, but by the kind of atmosphere of the campus, by the way the faculty respond to questions, by the culture of the campus, by the opportunities for student leadership in society, by the way the university as a corporation, as an institution, deals with its various constituencies. In all these things, I think, most of all, our students either learn good citizenship or poor citizenship. And I hope that will always be the way. It seems to me there are dangers in those institutions that attempt to indoctrinate their students with a particular view. I like to think that in the free competition of ideas, citizenship will emerge from that place. Yes, looking for some 
reasonable possibility of embracing the sum of human wisdom from every area of human experience. And what we offer is 4,000 courses. Go through the catalog, here's one for you. And I think you're so right in saying, unfortunately, that we have given up the responsibility to provide some core of experience that's meaningful. If I were, uh, if I had to suggest, if I were told to sit down and uh, write out what an undergraduate experience should represent, mine would go something like this. Uh, a sense of openness to others, first of all, with the ability to speak and to write and communicate effectively, but, but with a sense of openness, and that's why this community is so important to it. A sense of self-confidence and, and curiosity, a lifelong curiosity, with the skills you need to give some sort of uh, satisfaction to others. Uh, a sense of proportion and context about both society and nature, and we offer courses in introductory physics or, or sociology, but some contextual sense in this remarkable world in which we live, both natural and social. Uh, a sense of delight in the, in the richness of human experience, the arts, the performing arts, the visual arts, the written word, in all those wonderful ways in which human expression takes form. A sense of responsible citizenship, that, that comes back to just, just this word, um, including somehow the ability to get along with people who think otherwise. You know that lovely uh, definition of a faculty member is someone who thinks otherwise. And to expose our students to that in a way that shows them that you can disagree without being disagreeable. And that's one of the great things about a university education. A sense of intellectual mastery in one particular area is something. This is, we give them the major. It ought to be more than that. The shape of the contours of some area of knowledge and the ability to work my way through it with precision. And then I think a sense of direction and the kind of ethical moorings and moral foundations to I think if the, if the faculty here or elsewhere would wrestle with whether those or some other list of goals are meaningful for an education, the curriculum would drop into place in the most exciting way. And I think the faculty would find a degree of common interest, which so often uh, is lost in all the busy activity of proposal writing and departmental life. But I should be shouted down for that. <laughs> Thank you. 
phrase is that uh, this world of the internet has in fact going to further deteriorate the knowledge the past and the knowledge of the wisdom of the common fathers. This is really my question. Technology, university, which you advocate. I suppose technology is neutral in that particular one. I'm sure there's truth in what you say that we've, we've all of us become more careless about the past and all its significance. We, we were talking at dinner last night about the fact that for a scientist or a technologist, the idea of consulting scientific journals to go back more than three years is unthinkable. It's just a waste of time. For a humanist or a social scientist, uh, it's unthinkable. Those would not be available. And there is a sense in which the driving towards science, technology, and professionalism has tended to uh, lower the kind of tension that we give to us. We can do that at our own. Yes, please. Hi, Brendan. My question is a very practical one. I was much taken by your comment about universities being known for things they didn't do. That's probably not quite right. They're known for the things they do well. One doesn't think about the things that they don't do. However, what concerns me is that we're uh, now well into a long period, which I don't think is near to its end of the feeling that one must be doing everything. If you look at the national rankings of universities, one of the ways of doing it is by listing the number of departments which come in excellent category. Well, unless you're doing everything, you're not going to have a lot of departments in the excellent category. The growth of universities like this one was very much to do with the pressure to take on more things rather than say this university is now doing nothing as well, let's put the other things somewhere else. How on earth, practically, do we move out of that position into the position which I find much more attractive than you suggest of trying to get institutions of a sensible size doing a sensible number of things? Well, you're, you're quite right. Um, the question is from somebody who was enormously successful Vice Chancellor of the University of Warwick, precisely because, Clark, you, you fashioned that university in a particular niche, in a particular role, and succeeded gloriously so that the rest of the institutions in Britain have come to, to emulate that. And I think you're the architect of a, of a program that achieved just that. I think one reason that you're such a marvelous institution, maybe it doesn't have a
and perhaps to teach only a few of them supreme form. Let them have one place to teach a few of them strong program. I'm sure that will not be possible. There was a question here. I thought your statement of the problem was brilliant, but I don't see clearly the future direction. I think that's something that is going to be very difficult to figure out at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I thank you for your kind remarks about the diagnosis, but I don't have a prescription. I see only those channel markers. And you know, Clark uh, Kerr said that the university, the modern university, was not invented. Nobody conceived it. They couldn't it developed. And I think those channel markers are going to be the way we develop the new university. I couldn't draw your man, because I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm sure that it's going to look different than anything you visualize. But I think that those core values that I tried to conclude in teaching of a moral vocation, scholarship, and public trust, uh, those are going to endure. Because it seems to me they are the basic values on which our institutions
been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.